Well, here we are in chapter 8 of Genesis, the 28th message. I don't know how many more of these we're going to have. I'm going to pull the plug on this pretty quickly. I was thinking and hoping that we would be um, a little further along and have a couple of weeks prior to Christmas to focus on Christmas. So I'm not exactly sure how this is going to go. But today we're continuing in our story of Noah and the flood narrative. And quite a bit has happened from the beginning of our journey in Noah's life. In his day, among the tens or perhaps even hundreds of millions of people, he stands alone as a righteous man. In the New Testament, we read, and we'll read again today in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Noah warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so... The writer of Hebrews and other places in the New Testament declare Noah to be a righteous man, just as it was said in our journey together through Genesis. He is the first man that the Bible declares to be righteous and only one of two men who were described to walk with God. We read in Genesis 6-9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Others served the Lord, walked with the Lord, were faithful to the Lord, but only Noah and Enoch are told to us by Scripture to have walked with God. So in Noah's journey, as he is this faithful, righteous man amongst the tens of millions of wicked pagans who know nothing of God, desire nothing of God, He stands alone, he receives this announcement of the coming flood, the judgment against all of mankind, described in Genesis 6-5, the reason being, every intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continuously. I think we live in a pretty bad world right now. I can't imagine how much worse it would have been or how different it is today compared to Noah's day. But to think of what your life would look like if every intent of your heart was only evil continuously. Now Ken prayed in his prayer, even at our best we fall short of the glory of God, don't we? But don't we look at ourselves and say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I know there's people that are a lot worse than me and I'm sure there's many that are better than me. But I'm not really all that bad. And here is Noah standing alone in a period where the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. So Noah was instructed to build an ark, a floating vessel of salvation that would safely keep him, his family, and all of the air-breathing animal kingdoms safe until the flood waters would recede. So upon completion of the ark, Noah was instructed to get aboard. He did so with his family as well as all of the animal kingdom, and we can't even imagine what that would have looked like. A line of pairs of animals and creepy crawly things marching as instructed by God into their individual nest in the three-level ark. (laughs) What a sight that would have been. I mean, Noah didn't need a clipboard saying, well, the worms are here and the grasshoppers are here and the caterpillars are there. He didn't need it. They just came and they got aboard. And when it was all ready... God shut the door behind him. Four times in the story of Noah, in 6.22, in 7.5, in 7.9, and in 7.16, we are told, Noah did all that God commanded him to do. Everything. Nothing was left out. No debate, no argument. The story of Noah is the story of Noah. 
who happened to live during the catastrophic flood and was the man God chose to save and whose children God chose to repopulate the earth through. As much as we make this about the flood, it's a very one-off occurrence, isn't it? Catastrophic, devastation, death everywhere, never to happen again. This is really the story of Noah, who was righteous and blameless and walked with God, and God's interaction in Noah's life and in the world he created because... Noah stood alone. Whenever we read this story or reflect upon the features of the flood, we must remember and highlight the incredible faith of a righteous man who walked with God. In our story, the rains have come, so much so that the highest mountain is covered by at least 25 feet. So much water is falling through the rain that it is enough to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool on every square meter of the earth every minute for 960 hours. It's Niagara Falls everywhere over the face of the earth. The rain would be immense, something that the world had never seen before and will never see since. Noah and the ark are now high above the death and destruction of blow, bobbing and weaving on the water. God has decreated the world and returned it to its pre-creative state where the entirety of the earth is again covered by water. Going back to Genesis chapter 1 on day 2, we read this, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. So when earth was initially created and the Spirit of God hovered over it, the earth was encapsulated by nothing but water. And on day 2 of creation, God separated the water from the water, created a breathable atmosphere of the skies, the heavens, for us to live in, and now it's been recreated back to this part in creation where the earth is simply a big ball of water. So as we continue in the story of Noah and look at our building outline, we come to number six here, and that is the floating. It could have been called the waiting, the receding waters, the restoration. It could have been called any number of things. I thought about the floating. Here is this massive boat, some 450 feet long, able to hold 522 rail containers, able to hold hundreds of thousands of animals, up upon the water, just floating and bobbing and waiting for God to do what He's going to do. And bring an end to the flood. All that Noah knows is that he has trusted God, he has obeyed God, and he is now floating on the water waiting in a boat for what God is going to do next. The second half of the flood story is a perfect mirror to the first. Now we didn't look at this in the beginning, there just wasn't enough time to do that. But this is what the mirror looks like from part one of the flood story to part two of the flood story. So as you read through this, seven days of waiting, another seven days of waiting are described, 40 days of flood, 150 days of the water triumphing over the earth, 150 days of the water waning or receding, 
40 days of waiting, 7 days of waiting, followed by another 7 days of waiting. It's an an exact mirror of the first half of the flood story. We're going to read a very lengthy passage here, verse 1 to 19, and we'll divide this into three sections and really get through this much more quickly than you might imagine. Beginning in verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he set out, sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. And he waited yet another seven days, and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth, and be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. So these three sections are going to be verses 1 through 5, and then 6 through 14, and then 15 through 19. Four points that we're going to look at in this lengthy section. But we're going to begin with a little bit of an introduction, and this is incredibly important to me, and that is this. But God. Thinking about what has transpired, thinking about the absolute total wickedness of mankind, God's righteous act in decreating the world that man had corrupted, and in decreating the world he had uncorrupted what God, what he had made and what man had spoiled. He sent this devastating flood. All of life has been been devastated and taken away with the exception of that which is on the ark. And we read this, but God. These are two of the greatest words that I find in the English Bible. The words are often providing a contrast between God's actions of righteous judgment and His choosing to act in grace. We see this contrast in God's action as the helpless condition of man is described in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, 
God, excuse me, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the helpless, the hopeless, the enemies of God. Christ, the Son of God, the perfect reflection of who God is, died in our place taking upon Himself our punishment as a contrast to the righteous judgment of God on sinful man. We see this contrast in God's action against the total depravity of man as described in Ephesians 2, 1-7. through And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so we look at the flood and we go, yeah, but it did, did it really require that? God, was that not a little bit overboard? Was it not a little bit of an exaggeration of the wickedness of man? Who are we to ask God? Who are we to question God's righteous action when He looks upon the world that He created and the purposes for which He created it and He sees man do everything unthinkable on what God has made? Does God not have the prerogative to do what He wants to do with the world that he has made. He absolutely does. And so when we as humans look at this event and we go, yeah, but, yeah, but, God didn't have to, we basically underscore the reality that we have a very, very dim view of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the majesty and the splendor of God. He is all of these things infinitely. And in our pre-Christ state, we are infinitely sinful and deserving of God's punishment. But God, but God being rich in mercy does not do what we are deserving to have done. He chooses to respond in grace. And here we see as a contrast to the righteous action of God in decorrupting His world. But God, letter A, remembered. God remembered. God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. God's remembering always implies his movement toward an action. Or excuse me, a movement toward the object. God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. You know, there's times where I'm sitting at home and I think, you know, I remember that i got to do this thing, but I don't get up and go do it. I just kind of sit and wait, and I might forget about it again, and it might not get done. But when God remembers, He moves. He is acting towards the object that He has remembered. And so here is Noah in this massive boat, bobbing and weaving and floating on the floodwaters with all of the animal kingdom with him, and God remembered him. 
God remembered the, the animal kingdom that He had created. And at the heart of God's remembering his, is His action towards someone because of a previous commitment. When God remembered Noah... He moved because of the commitment that he made to Noah. Now, there are times when I might be sitting and I'm not thinking about an appointment that I'm supposed to keep. And if I've made a commitment to be with someone or to do something at a certain time, and if I forgot, buddy, I jump up and I get on the go because I don't like to be late. Well, God's never late, but God remembers Noah. God knows what He committed to Noah, what He committed to do, what He committed to save Noah from, and here He remembers Noah, and He acts towards him based upon this previous commitment. When God remembered Abraham and His covenant with Abraham, He saved Lot, as recorded in Genesis 19.29. When He remembered the covenant that He made with Rachel, she conceived and would eventually give birth in Genesis 30.22. Everything that happens from this point forward in the story of Noah is the result of God remembering Noah and choosing to act towards Noah because of the commitment commitment that He made to him. God is always faithful. God is never slack regarding His promises. Never, ever. Now thinking back to what we sung, God said, I will never leave you. Never. I will never forsake you. Never. You might think I have. It might feel like I have. Others might be telling you that I have. But I will never leave you. God is always faithful. And so here He is remembering the commitment that He made to Noah in His kindness, in His love, in His goodness. He moves towards Noah to provide for him and the animal kingdom on the ark. Although Noah is righteous and he's blameless in his day, he is not sinless. He does not deserve the grace and the goodness of God, but God has simply chosen Noah for His purposes. God could accomplish His purposes apart from Noah, or apart from any other human being for that matter, but God often chooses people through whom He will accomplish His purposes. Have you ever thought about that before? God chooses people through whom He is going to accomplish His purpose. The Bible is filled with examples of that. It's an example of Noah. It's an example in Moses. It's an example in Abraham. It's an example in David. It's an example through Paul. It's an example through you who call God your Father. He wants to accomplish His purposes through you. Well, what are those purposes? Well, just read your Bible. Read your Bible, pray, repent of your sin, commit to live for Him, commit to obey Him, and God will begin to show you what His purposes are. Very many general purposes that He has for us to love Him, to serve Him, to tell others about Him. There's very specific purposes that God equips you and calls you to do because you are a child of God who has been given the message of hope, who is an ambassador for Christ, who is to go out and live in such a way that others say, there's something different about that person. I need to know what it is. God always chooses, excuse me, God often chooses people through whom He will accomplish His purposes. And this is exactly 
what he is allowing to take place through the life of Noah. God could have saved the animal kingdom without the ark, but he didn't. He used Noah. God could have recreated humanity from the dirt of the de- of the recreated earth, but he didn't. He chose to use Noah's sons. God chooses people through whom He will accomplish His purposes. And I hope the question that each of us ask ourselves is, what purpose does God want to to accomplish through me? Is there one? Absolutely there is. What is it? I can't tell you. I can tell you generally. But God would delight in revealing to each of us what our purpose is, what it is He would like to accomplish through us. All through the Bible we see the same thing. God chooses to use people to accomplish His purposes. He doesn't have to do it that way, but that's the way He wants to do it. And so for the recreation of life upon the earth, God chooses to use Noah as described through this flood narrative And he does so to accomplish his purposes that are totally unique for Noah. Let her be in our outline. The water recedes. God remembers his commitment to Noah, and now the water recedes. The last part of verse 1, And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. So God brings about a wind to move the water and cause its rapid evaporation back into the atmosphere. What is very interesting to us, and we, what we don't get in English is the words that are used in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew text. What is described here echoes what took place in creation. When the Spirit, or the Ruhah, of the Lord hovered over the earth prior to the creative work of God being completed, that's how it's described, the Ruhah of, the, of God covered the earth. Here, God caused a wind, a ruhah, to pass over the earth to mimic a recreation of the earth that will eventually be revealed when the waters recede. So just as the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the water and the earth and enca- the water encapsulated earth and caused his spirit to move about that and eventually created the detail of earth as described in Genesis. In the same way, the spirit is now moving the waters over the face of the earth to reveal a recreated world once the once the ground is again dry. Verse two continues also the fountain of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. So the springs of water that had burst forth, so much so that some 500,000 gallons of water was falling on every square meter of the earth every minute, it has all been stopped. The rain ceases and the wind blows and the drying on the earth begins. It says in verse 3, and the water receded steadily from the earth and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. So it is understood that this 150-day mark here includes the beginning of the rains, which lasted for 40 days. And so the ark rests upon Mount Ararat 100 days, 100, excuse me, 110 days after the rain stopped. 40 days of rain followed by 110 days of floating before it landed on the top of Mount Ararat. So according to the mirrored timeline that we're looking at, I don't remember if I didn't put it back up there, 40 days of the flood, 150 days of the water triumphing, 150 days of water waning, and 40 days of waiting. And so this, this now marks the beginning of, well not really, this marks a new part of the time flow for us in that 
the oak, the ark has floated for a number of days as the water was receding. And as the water was receding, that began a new 150 day period that Noah was aboard the ark. So this period of floating water, as the water begins to recede, leads us to verse 4. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So what is interesting is that the seventh month that is that is that is mentioned here in the religious calendar of the Hebrew is the month of Tishri. It is the most important month of the sacred required gatherings for the nation of Israel that would eventually be revealed in the book of Leviticus. It includes the Day of Atonement as well as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets, and the Sacred Assembly. So when Israel is required to go to Jerusalem to worship, majority majority of these take place in the seventh month, which accidentally, coincidentally, or very providentially is the same month of the year that the ark hits the top of Mount Ararat. So it's appropriate that the ark would find its refuge in the Jewish month that celebrates atonement and God's provision as the ark upon the floodwaters is a foreshadowing of God's action towards Israel in the future. So just as the ark is now on the top of Mount Ararat and will be a salvation to Noah and the animals, it's a foreshadowing of the way God is going to act and intervene on behalf of the nation of Israel. Now, Ararat is in modern-day Armenia, which borders southeast Turkey, southern Russia, and northwest Iran. You can kind of get an idea of where it is in the eastern part of the world. Verse 5 says, The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So there's approximately 40 days of floating as the flood waters are receding. And here there's a time stamp of another 72 days that the ark is perched on the top of Mount Ararat. And at this point, as Noah would look out of the windows, he'd be able to see the tops of other mountains, perhaps other hills. So at this time, two plus months are spent on the top of Ararat, no longer floating, but now stuck and not able to disembark off of the ark. Noah and all the passengers on the ark have nothing to do but sit and wait. Do you like to wait? (laughs) Think about how hard it would be to bob and weave. 40 days as the floodwaters came up, 110 days while the flood was completed. Another approximate 40 days as the water receded, stuck on the ark for approximately 70 days on the top of Mount Ararat. Whoever invented the phrase cabin fever, referencing the feeling of being cooped up too long in one space, probably should have called it ark fever, don't you think? Could you imagine being in that kind of an environment with all of those animals for that long of a period of time? This leads us to letter C, the earth dries. Verse 6, And it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. So this is kind of an interesting piece because of the mention of a raven. There's no reason given why Noah released a raven as there is with the dove. The raven is a very strong flyer. It's able to stay in the air for long periods of time. It is believed that the raven would be able to to rest on the waters and feed on 
carcasses that would likely still be floating. A lot of speculation. There's no real way of knowing what purpose the raven served. Rabbinic tradition says it was sent off because it was considered expendable since it was neither clean, useful for sacrifice, or for food. If it did, in fact, go off the ark and not come back, we don't know if it did or didn't, the Bible doesn't really tell us here, it could not have perished, otherwise ravens would have been extinct afterwards. So whatever happened to it, it found its mate later on because we still have ravens today. So there's no time interval stated here, but Noah also releases a dove. Many speculate that it's probably seven days, but it doesn't say. Verse 8 and 9, Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land, but the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So all that Noah was able to see was the tops of mountains, perhaps even hills. He had no way of knowing how much the water had receded. Sending off a dove would be an indication of whether or not there was dry land. The dove is a clean animal used for sacrifice and for food. It serves as the eyes for Noah since he cannot see if the ground is dry. The dove returns since there is no place for it to land. We continue now. A week later, Noah sends out the dove again. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. So the time, she, this time she returns with evidence that the earth is drying out. Her ability to find an olive tree to pick a limb from or a branch from. So trees were already blooming and the earth was producing some of its vast vegetation. We have no idea of how much, but it's slowly returning to its pre-flood state. Things were getting very close to normal. We read in verse 12, then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. So seven days later, the dove goes out, does not return, indicating that she has found a suitable place to land and to perhaps start to build a nest. The earth was dry. And the world had, in a sense, been recreated after the judgment of God in his sovereign choice to decorrupt the world he made. Now, what is often lost in this reading is what we're going to see here in verse 13 and 14. Now, it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Two things here. The first day of the month, it's the new month, first day of the new month. Noah opens the door and sees the dry ground. New creation is realized on the first day of the new month. What is amazing is that Noah and all the animals remain on the ark for almost two more months waiting For the earth to be completely dry, they can see that it's dry. There's likely wet spots that are still visible. In total, they're on the earth, on the ark for one year and eleven days. And so why when they opened the door and can see the mostly dry ground, did they not just stampede out and begin life again? Well, apparently, Noda simply waited for God. 
He waited for God to say, it is now time to go. And this is what we see in letter D, the passengers disembark. 15 to the end of the passage here. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. We often forget this, but the ark is somewhere up on the top of a mountain. And when the door is open, they can see... And there's likely some dry ground. It's not totally dry. But after this one month, 27 day period, God gives them the instruction to go. And now they descend the mountain down to the flatlands and begin life anew. The initial command is repeated in verses 18 and 19 to be fruitful and to multiply. It seems redundant. But what it does is it emphasizes that Noah did exactly what he was commanded to do. Every step of the way, Noah was faithful and obedient. Life was to resume. There was much to be done. But as we're going to see in the next section we'll go through, the first order of business was to honor God's salvific work through sacrifice. God saved Noah and all of the animal kingdom. I would imagine that Noah knew he didn't deserve it. And so they're going to come off of the ark. They're going to get to the flat lands. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to offer sacrifice. God is going to speak and give instruction. And that's where we're going to spend next time. A couple of things that stand out to me in this is that as much as we make this about the destruction of the world, it's really about the life of Noah. It's about a righteous blameless man who walked with God and did everything God commanded him to do. It's about the fact that God is faithful to carry to completion that which he promised to Noah. That you build the ark and you get on it with all the animal kingdom and I will see you on the other side. And that's exactly what he did. It's also a reminder to me that God chooses us for a specific purpose in this world, much like he chose Noah. And although our purpose isn't captured in an event like the flood, it's still a purpose that God has ordained and saved us for. And if we are to be people who strive after the righteousness of Noah, then we need to be obedient in all that God tells us to do. We need to be faithful as God is to us. Would you pray with me, please?